Is it recording? Rabbi Block is a prominent New York City activist and was recently appointed Chief Executive Officer and Director of Operations for Zaka International. Previously, he served for eight years as a volunteer with Zaka Rescue Recovery Disaster and Burial Unit. Rabbi Block is also a paramedic with Hassella of Queens, clergy liaison to the New York Police Department, chaplain for the New York City Medical Examiner's Office, and the Director of Crisis Management for Our Place New York. A respected leader in the New York City community, he is a tireless crusader and advocate for victims of um, physical, psychological, and sexual abuse. Thank you very much. Good afternoon, everybody, and thank you for coming here today to learn about Zaka. Most people that have heard of Zaka assume that it pertains specifically and only to death, uh, burial, and identifying body parts. <clears throat> which is the reason why we were founded, but uh, hopefully today you're going to all learn that we are much, much more than that. I'm going to do my best to use the limited time allotted to me to explain that, and we'll give you a chance to ask questions at the end. Zaka is an acronym uh, in Hebrew, which is Zichui Karbanot Ason, Identification of Disaster Victims. And this is actually the reason why Zaka was created, in order to be able to identify victims of disaster, primarily at that point being terrorist attacks. Today, Zaka has grown into a full-fledged global response team that provides a multitude of services in many capacities. What is, what is Zaka? As you heard earlier from Mr. Shalita, <coughs> Zaka was founded after realizing the need by a few yeshiva guys after the 1989-405 bus attack. Just to put it into perspective, the 405 terror attack in Israel is what we effectively call in the United States 9-11. That was the event that led up to creating the need for Zaka as well as really shaking up the entire country to head in towards the future and getting much better at preparedness, which is a lot of what you heard today. <coughs> Excuse me. While the initial purpose of Zaka was to identify human remains and to make sure that people can get buried in accordance with Jewish law and tradition, such as cleaning up the scenes from body parts, blood, etc., a lot of our volunteers came back to report that they were on the scene, had people that were living and did not know what to do to help them. So Zaka joined forces with Mugin David Edom, which is the Israeli First Response Ambulance Agency, and our members at that point got trained as EMTs and paramedics to be able to provide that initial triage and treatment while then waiting to do their holy work of cleaning up. And this really is the story of how Zaka grew to what it is today. As we saw a need or saw a void in a response type setting, we then grew and expanded to be able to fulfill that need to be able to assist people going forward. In 2005, Zaka was given the prestigious honor of being named a humanitarian NGO by the United Nations. And from our very humble begin beginnings, we currently have over 2,800 volunteers worldwide. 
I'm going to start off by explaining the core units of Zakov within Israel, how they're subdivided and what they do. And then I'm going to go on to the special operations divisions and then the international rescue and recovery unit. Our core unit of Zaka is obviously Chesed Shalemet, the main unit which is the purpose of why we started. This is the unit that unfortunately has to go to the tragic accidents, whether it's a train derailment, whether it's a car accident, a bus accident, and deal with any and all unnatural deaths within the state of Israel. This is also the unit that deals with autopsy prevention. You know, many times there's questionable areas as far as, you know, the government's wanting to do autopsies versus us trying to avoid it. As well as we handle, obviously, Kevri Yisrael. Many times it's in cases people cannot afford to get buried. In Israel, that's really not that big of an issue, but that's what we deal with a lot out of Eretz Yisrael. And we also have our identification unit, which... Uh, works with most of our units are actually part of the Israeli police forensics unit and that helps us in two ways first of all we're able to identify remains body parts use forensic pathology as well as we know how to manage a scene that's potentially a crime scene without ruining the scene and destroying it from the investig investigatorial standpoint um, last year alone the Chesed Shal Emet units of Zaka actually handled over thousands of cases and just to give you a little bit of a description Zaka within Israel is actually separated into six divisions, six regions, and the core units are based by region. So all six regions have a Chesed Shalom, Emmet unit, Medapa unit, etc. Our medical response unit, again, was formed because of the purpose of our volunteers being on a scene and not knowing what to do. From initially starting off as EMTs and paramedics, we've currently grown into a full-fledged response unit where we have our own motorcycle response units throughout the country. We have medics. Most of our medics are actually people that trained in the military. Uh, we're currently doing a lot of ear ambulance transports, both within Israel and then to and from Israel, as well as international transports. We, the most recent uh, famous case that we've done, even though we do quite a few of these every month, was the uh, Chabad Shliach in Russia that was injured in a biased attack that we actually brought to Israel for the appropriate medical care as well as that he can be with his family while he's recuperating and getting better. We also have you know, throughout the entire country our missing persons unit. Now this unit was actually created once our volunteer base had reached about a thousand and at this point people were calling the Zaka emergency number for a lot more than just emergencies pertaining to medical as well as accidents and death related things. So we've created a search protocol based on the age of the person that's missing, the location of where they are, and all other additional information that we were able to put together. And we utilize our specialized training and expertise to be able to locate this, you know, the missing person. This is handled by the regions individually, and mostly this unit responds to elderly patients such as Alzheimer's, dementia, or children that generally go missing from large fears, school trips, camps, etc. Um, this unit was created specifically for this purpose and then from this unit we've actually involved into the search and rescue unit that you heard much about earlier and we'll go into as well. Um, as I note on the slide, we did close to 10,000 searches just within the state of Israel from this unit in local regions last year alone. And as I said, as issues came up and as there were greater needs we've decided to do what we can to fill those needs 
So we've created the specialty units, or what we call the Special Operations Division of Zaka, to be able to handle multiple different responses for very, very specific cases. These units within Israel actually act as support to the local units, as well as this was actually the beginning of the International Rescue Unit when we started utilizing these specialists to travel outside of the country when we first started. So the first that I'll explain is the off-road search and rescue unit. This, Israel is known as a very big destination for hiking and many other off-road activities. There was a lot of times when people were getting, whether it's lost, whether it's injured, whether it's off a cliff in the depths of a tunnel, and people were just not able to get help in a quick manner. So we started off by using ATVs so that we can get to remote areas and areas that we cannot get to with regular vehicles, whether it's going to be um, desert areas or whether it's going to be you know, mountainous, terrainous areas. At that point, we also created our tactical rescue and recovery unit to be able to do repelling people that went off cliffs. We also have a confined space rescue unit as well as a mountain rescue unit. Um, this unit specifically handles any high risk uh, types of search and rescues and this unit also has been deployed around the world as well. Um, another one of our specialty units is our hazardous materials response unit. This is actually a specialized unit for nuclear, biological and chemical exposures. And this unit was actually created for fear of terror related incidents. Uh, but in reality this unit has been kept pretty busy just from regular workplace accidents such as exposures in chem chemical plants, pharmaceutical laboratories and things of that sort. On these scenes the safety of our team always comes first and we operate with the goal of bringing out people from contaminated areas, getting them decontaminated and then getting them to the appropriate facilities for medical care. This unit as well operates in other countries as well as uh, we've seen earlier today and um, has been doing these trainings not just in Israel but internationally as well. Now Israel is a beautiful place that we all love to go to and we know there's a lot of beaches and waterfronts and once again there was a need based on people that were having issues within the water. So we've created our water rescue and our dive team. We currently have over 200 volunteers that are spread around the entire country and most of our trainers and volunteers are actually former and reserve Navy commandos known as Shayeta 13. This unit was actually the first of our specialty units to officially get called by foreign nations to come conduct searches. Um, one of them was being when the Israeli ambassador to France went missing and this unit actually flew to France, conducted the search and successfully recovered the body. Unfortunately he was no longer alive. In addition to that, we've also started our canine unit, which really it sets us apart from other search and rescue organizations because our canine unit is doing dual jobs just as the rest of our volunteers. On one hand, they're looking for people that are missing, that are still alive. On the other hand, we have to have dogs that are trained for cadaver searches to find people that are no longer alive. Uh, we currently have over 50 dogs throughout the country with 65 specialty trained handlers specifically knowing how to deal with this. We did over 600 calls last year alone within Israel and recently um, we've had the first 15 of our dogs be authorized to be able to travel overseas as well to join the international unit for searches. And today Zaka is much more than just those divisions that, were separate, that we separated and divided amongst Israel. 
Zaka currently has a huge international presence and is not only recognized by the UN as an NGO but by the international communities as well. The international unit is currently made up not only of volunteers from Israel but we have an additional 1,200 plus volunteers throughout the world in over 15 different countries that are specially trained to be able to deploy rapidly with a wide variety of people, both medical, search and rescue, and technical volunteers, so we can provide a variety of functions when necessary. Our team, as many people have known, deploys, um, deploys to natural disasters around the world, such as the earthquake in Haiti, as we've heard about, the tsunami in Japan, and we were also called to recover the remains of the astronaut in the Columbia shuttle disaster in 2003. We also respond many times to unfortunately terrorist attacks around the world, such as the Chabad House tragedy in Mumbai, and the bus bombing in Burgas, and many, many more. Obviously, when handling these scenes, our main focus and the reason why we were created always is kept on the top of our minds for Kavar Hamet, and to make sure that we can bring and repatriate people to be buried in accordance with Halacha Jewish law as quickly as possible. In addition to that, our international unit has been dealing a lot with family members contacting us when a loved one passes away while on vacation in a foreign country. And there, there's a lot of technical issues, whether it's local laws governing autopsies, embalmment, how many days it takes to be able to get a body released from one country to another. And we've been really, Baruch Hashem, successful in that division and being able to help bring people back for KVS role as quickly as possible. We also have a 24-7 manned hotline specifically for these emergencies and what we generally do is when we get a call from someone who passes away in a foreign country, we locate our closest volunteer to that location who's either going to work with them by phone or in person. Closest doesn't always mean mileage-wise, it can also mean how long it'll take someone to get there. We have people that die in one country, we might have a unit two countries over, but it takes two connecting flights to get there, so we'll send someone from further who will actually get there a lot quicker. And most recently, we've been doing a lot of different training. Um, I myself led a team down to Indiana where we did a five-day training with the Indiana National Guard, U.S. Marines, and the IDF Home Front Command. We have another one coming up in a couple of weeks in Israel. We have created an international training curriculum which we use primarily for schools, synagogues, and other places of work where people to just be prepared for disasters. I mean, we always know that you can never really be prepared, but as we heard uh, one of the doctors mention earlier, the amazing thing about the Boston Marathon bombing was the fact that there was so much training in advance by the Israelis, where when that incident unfortunately took place, people were actually trained and prepared and had to deal with it. So we created a curriculum for schools, primarily shuls. We just did a training in France. We did one in Belgium about a month ago, where we're creating different types of plans based on the facility that they're in, whether it's escape plans, building layouts to know where they should go to, and we also offer, in addition to that, basic first aid, CPR, and defibrillator classes as well. We've also been doing a lot of trainings with foreign governments, where we work with medical examiners around the world and educate them on the Jewish laws, on matters pertaining to death and burial, so that when we do call them, it shouldn't always be making a new relationship when there's a tragedy, but to try to be prepared in advance. So we've already done that in 11 countries throughout the world, and we are growing. And obviously this is all in addition to our regular international response that handles all the disasters and things of that nature that we have. 
Some of the current issues that we deal with, that our volunteers deal with on a regular basis, and a lot of these are going to be touched upon by uh, Mark Kurzman in a few moments. We are always looking what we can do to better the systems for the future and be able to learn from our past cases, and I would even say past mistakes that we've made, as we all do while we're growing, and not have to deal with them again in the future. Uh, a topic that's been a very, very gray area, touched on a lot, has been the order organ donations protocols. So while we know in general there's always these halachic debates that I'm not going to get into as far as what is and what isn't appropriate, we deal with that more on a real life basis. When we have volunteers on a scene of a disaster, of a tragedy, and you know these guys are trained both medical and recovery, and they see someone who is still alive, may not be, may yes be, what do we do at that point as far as harvesting organs, knowing that there's other people that would need them. And these are issues that we deal with on a very regular basis when doing disaster response. And we're currently working with a variety of Rabbanim to try to come to some sort of happy medium so we can have an official protocol in place of what to do when these situations arise. Autopsy prevention is obviously a key thing that we're working on globally, uh, trying to figure out the best ways we've currently uh, been negotiating with a very big medical company to get a grant to try to start promoting virtual autopsies, MRIs. Uh, it's not fully accepted yet by the medical profession. We do have doctors on board that are working with us to make it more acceptable, and hopefully that'll be something that can really help us for the future. Uh, Cross-border burial, as I mentioned earlier, helping repatriate loved ones when someone is nifter while on vacation or overseas. Now, determination of death has become a very big issue that we have, and uh, this is, I think, uh, Rav Maish, this is going to be an issue that is going to be discussed, primarily end-of-life issues, and without going into the political ramifications, how Obamacare is going to affect this as well. Um, ever since the matter with Terry Schiavo, there's been a lot of states that have created various laws uh, in determining cause of death that maybe can negate halacha, and we are trying to remain on the forefront of fighting that battle as well. And, you know, we're living in a world now where we have a lot of people that primarily financial reasons reach out to us they can't afford to bury their loved ones and they opt to try to cremate them so we have volunteers all around to try to help deal with these families and bring them to Kavir Yisrael many times we will cover the expenses for this as well in order to ensure that anyone that we know of that passes away is given a proper and kosher burial disaster management is something we're again learning from the past to head towards the future, so we're creating additional protocols and doing a lot more training exercises with various governments, agencies, branches of military to be able um, to provide the best scene disasters when the disaster management when necessary. And then of course victim identification, which was the initial reason as to why we started. So we're currently working with forensic pathologists throughout the world to try to come up with better methods of rapid DNA identification as well as chest x-rays, dental records, and things of that nature so we can readily and easily identify victims at disaster sites and ensure that we can bury people as whole as best as possible. Our dream for the future. So what we've been really working on is to, as I mentioned earlier, to get Rabbanim involved working with us with the organ donations, getting really community leaders and activists, putting together lawyers, putting together doctors, EMTs, nurses, military veterans, search and rescue, repelling teams, people that have a lot of experience that can really help us grow to where we want to get to. 
My vision for Zaka is I would like it to not just be a global response team, but I'd like to have an army of 10,000 people or more in all these different capacities. You know, the organization doesn't just run by EMTs, paramedics, and search and rescue personnel, but by all the people around us that really help us get to where we have to get to, whether it's legislatively lobbying, <coughs> making sure that the appropriate laws are read appropriately, for having lawyers involved, having people that have real experience in disaster management joining our board, and of course bringing in young leadership, people that see the vision for the future to be able to really help us get to where it is that we need to get to. So I would like to thank all of you for coming here and listening. I'm sure some of you will have questions and we'll have times for that afterwards. And uh, if anyone here would like to get involved and help us in any which way, shape or form, we'd love to hear from you. Thank you very much. Best of luck. My name is Eliane Newman. I'm a secretary of the Medical Ethics Society. It gives me great pleasure to introduce Mr. Mark Bergman. Mr. Bergman has represented patients in numerous end of life cases in the U.S. and abroad and has advised in drafting mass disaster protocols which allow governments to accommodate halakha and respect Jewish burial practices. He was a lead trial counsel in the federal class action which established the right to treatment in New York for civilly committed mental health patients. Before entering private practice, Mr. Herdman served as a senior trial attorney and executive attorney, where he successfully defended the Executive Office of Privacy, FBI, CIA, State Department, and National Security Agencies in several well-known national security and civil rights cases involving significant issues of public policy. The U.S. Attorney General awarded him the department's highest litigation award. His current practice includes novel and complex federal and state litigation, government relations and investigations, crisis management and media relations, including terrorism investigations, zoning and land use, as well as constitutional, civil, and religious rights. Mr. President, that's the Sarah Candace, um, like Candace, she's everything about them. They're great. And also, he's been kind enough to prepare supplemental material packets, which I encourage you to take on the Thank you very much, uh, Ms. Newman. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. I have a lot of ground to cover in a short amount of time. And I encourage you to ask questions at the end for anything that interests you that I may have left out. Uh, we know uh, from the old saying that the pen is mightier than the sword, but I'm going to try to address today how on a micro level sometimes the pen can even be mightier than the scalpel. Zaka does enormously important work and only less than the tip of the iceberg actually uh, comes to the public's attention. I've had the good uh, fortune to be able to assist uh, Rabbi Gluck on a number of cases, and I've selected two in particular, uh, one involving a rescue uh, in uh, Rainier National Park in the state of Washington, subject of a magazine article in the beginning of the materials, and also one involving the um, end-of-life crisis suffered by an Israeli citizen in Albuquerque, New Mexico, um, dealing with um, a hospital staff that wanted to terminate his ventilator support and ultimately dealing with the transport of his remains for Kura in Eretz Yisrael. Uh, all according to the Psach Halacha of Rav Chaim Kanievsky, 
implemented through Zaka, through Agudas Yisrael, through Chabad, through a uh, reformed female rabbi, all working in concert to save this one Jew. It was an extraordinary, extraordinary cast of characters. And the footnote is that the female partner of the reformed rabbi uh, was appointed by the court to represent the healthcare proxy girlfriend of the Israeli who wanted to terminate the, uh, the life support, and these two female partners were battling each other in court. You cannot make this stuff up. Uh, in any event, a little baseline. Now, when I was a student here years ago, when this building was under construction, uh, the public relations department was rated as the top department at Yeshiva University and the food services department was rated by the students as number two. And I'm sure both have advanced, but since then and probably in the hearts of many still remain in that ranking, although the ranking of the college and university has gone up uh, nationally. Uh, the most important parts of some of my handouts were highlighted by me, and I am not a computer expert, and the PDF Adobe Acrobat files were so effectively colored that the black text that I want you to see is not there. So I will try to supplement it for you. Uh, there are two main principles that we have in Jewish life, no matter where you are on the spectrum of halakhic psaq, that don't really mesh with American culture and with current medical ethics, and I dare say never will. So what our efforts are at the micro level when we're dealing with an individual case is to reach some kind of accommodation that doesn't compromise the key halachic interests. And the two concepts that simply don't fly or play in Peoria are one, that since human life is of infinite value, every portion of that infinity is also of, human, of infinite value and cannot be compromised. And that creates a clash of civilizations that's irreconcilable. So what we try to do is try to find some kind of accommodation. The second is the definition of the time of death. And the best work in that subject is by Rabbi, that I've seen in the English language, is by Rabbi Dr. David Shabtai, who uh, is a member of the Webster Kolelelion here, who uh, did a book, uh, published a book called Defining the Moment, which you could easily purchase at the next Wyoming's Farm sale. And he covers the ground without taking a position himself. But we have a concept of Yitzhiyas Neshama, and we don't have the technology or the, or the um, metaphysical um, measuring instruments to measure it and detect it. So, although there is a broad spectrum of halakhic opinion, both here and in Neresh Yisrael, about how to do, deal with this on a, an operational level, um, withdrawing of life support is not permitted if it's going to cause death. The, most of the time, the question goes to adding supplemental uh, medication, treatment, etc. So, uh, we deal with that, and it, interestingly, uh, in one of the cases I collaborated with, with, uh, with Rabbi Gluck, uh, in Albuquerque, New Mexico, court asked, what is the Israeli law? And we produced a brief overnight, which was used by the World Guardian, appointed by the court, and the court relied on it to buy some more time for this patient, and it made a world of difference. So let's get down to work. There's a famous Mishnah in, uh, the, in, in the Masech of Sanhedrin that's quoted all the time. Anyone who saves one person in Israel is as if he saved an entire world. If you uh, take a look, by the way, uh, anyone who uh, I would invite you to please send me an email and I'll send you the PDFs without the fancy coloration so that you can see the actual text in context. Um, Professor Larry Kaplan, of, who was a student at Yeshiva, now uh, 
uh, went on to Harvard and t- taught at McGill University, did the English translation of Rabbi Soloveitchik Zatzal's classic work, Isha Halacha, Halachic Man. And in the original Hebrew, the Rav had there are different manuscripts of the Mishnah, be Israel or not. And I have copied in here the, the copy of the Mishnah that the Rambam has and quotes in the Mishnah Torah, and he leaves out the Israel. But the Rav wrote in Isha Halacha, the Israel. So when Larry Kaplan was translating it to English under commission by the Jewish Publication Society, he was sitting with the Rav and the Rav directed, and that's what's blanked out on the page here from from Professor Kaplan, uh, the Rav told him, leave out from Israel. Uh, that's a, a contemporary view, and that, that, that uh, philosophy resonated in the presentations that you heard this morning. Rav Moshe Feinstein says essentially the same thing, but in a different way, and the halachic underpinnings of saving a Gentile and a Jew are different, but the results on an operational level, as you've heard, are the same. In Rav Moshe Feinstein's Sefer Darish Moshe, he discusses the difference between preserving life and respecting life from a Jewish and a non-Jewish point of view. And he says from a Jewish Jewish point of view, we save and protect and treat human life because of Hashiva Sa'adam. Every person is created in the image of God, we have to take care of him. While on a civic society, society, societal level, we take care of people because it's, well, otherwise we'd have chaos in society. But once a person gets old and he doesn't have quality of life, there's no reason to preserve him. And Rav Moshe wrote this decades ago, and it resonates today as much as it was true then. Let's talk about a couple of cases. This one, we can discuss the name of the person because it became very public. Dr. Brian Grobar was a very well-known, very well-respected and beloved psychiatrist, a prominent member of the Young Israel of New Rochelle, and lived in New Rochelle, and he went out to Seattle, Washington for the family simcha. He was a, an accomplished hike, outdoorsman, hiked uh, uh, all the time, very fit, and when he took, took the opportunity while being on the, in the Pacific Northwest to do some hiking in, in, in Mount Rainier National Park. He's there, and the weather turns bad. He was very well-prepared. Nevertheless, he gets lost in the snow. He doesn't return to the car in the parking lot. And next morning, after people, the family determines that he's not around, he didn't come back, he didn't get on the plane, uh, they send out a search party. And if and when you take the trouble read, read the article, it's fascinating. The, the divine providence in the recovery of his body is, is incredible. They finally find him. It takes a while for the, the army search and rescue team to get helicopter access to, to where he's stuck. They extract him from the snow where his body is frozen. They fly him to Madigan uh, Army Hospital. They try to revive him in the emergency room, and unfortunately, it doesn't, it's not successful. So, uh, Rabbi Gluck's organization is, is contacted because uh, the U.S. Army Hospital at the, the McClure Joint Base has no civilian morgue facilities and they don't release bodies to civilian necks of kin. So routinely, they, re- they release their bodies to the Clark County Medical Examiner, who's a state official. But the death of the doctor occurred on a, what we call a federal reservation. So uh, the, the doctor gets the, um, gets the body, and he notifies the family, that, well, I've got to do an autopsy on this fellow. The family are Torah-observant Jews, and they contact Rabbi Buck, and so what are we going to do about this? So we know, essentially, the Jewish rule 
and the, uh, the generally the, the civil rule in the United States and elsewhere is an autopsy is authorized by law when one of two conditions are present. But the stricture is much higher in halacha than it is on a civil basis. One, if there was a crime committed and doing the autopsy would help determine the cause of the crime, how it was done, and how we might be able to catch the, the criminal. And second, whether there's a danger of disease and uh, spreading contagious disease. Now this fellow um, died in a sterile environment. There were no signs of foul play on his body. And the park rangers testified that there were no signs of any footprints around his body. So no, but there was no foul play involved. But this, uh, this medical examiner was very adamant, and he went to court. Um, actually, Chabad went to court. They located a, a, a local lawyer whose parents were Holocaust survivors. I had the privilege of collaborating with him. Uh, and uh, they won, and the state kept appealing through Rabbi Gluck's good offices. Uh, senators, congressmen, governor were contacted, put pressure on the local Clark County medical examiner to give up. He wouldn't give up. His professional prerogatives and perhaps his personal pride, as we say in Yiddish, his hubris, wouldn't let him let go of this case. And um, he was wearing a Stan Franklin. So uh, I got the assignment to do a little research. Uh, one of the interesting things about these cases is generally the shelf life of these cases is 24 to 48 hours. So we lawyers who get involved have to drop everything to do it. And um, I, to digress just for a minute, I'm a former Justice Department lawyer, and federal jurisdiction is something that is one of my favorite subjects. So I did a little homework, and I learned that between 1897 and 1903, the entire Rainier National Park, which is several thousands of acres, uh, was ceded, meaning acquired, uh, by the United, uh, ceded meaning given and, and acquired by the United States of America by the state of Washington with only one or two provisos which, which were that in case uh, there were necessities to serve state papers on state defendants on this federal reservation there would be no immunity of a civilian other than that it's federal land just like Washington D.C. is federal land so the argument was that the county medical examiner had no jurisdiction over this federal dead body, in a sense. That, together with the argument of religious freedom that the family advanced, carried the day. And um, it, was a remarkable, it was a remarkable success. And the Rabbi Gluck helped to, uh, to implement the transport of, uh, of the nifter to... Uh, to first to New York and then to, to Israel, and he found his final rest at Har Menuchus only a day or two later. And uh, I cannot tell you how gratifying that kind of experience is. And if you want to know why people who work with the Rabbi Gluck keep going and don't have the post-traumatic syndrome effects that you heard about this morning, it's because of the Kiyom Mitzvah. That, that's the best antidote. And um, I'm not here on a sales mission, but for those of you who would be interested, particularly on the graduates who are here, uh, don't be deterred by how difficult it, it looks. It can be done, and it's done very, very regularly by people who are determined. Moving right along before my time expires, um, we'll talk a moment about um, the case in New Mexico, um, the one that I talked about, the unusual cast of characters and how we, we approach that. Uh, there is an um, expurgated version of my letter brief that we filed in that case. It's on my letterhead. It's um, February 25, 2013. As far as I know, and I've discussed it with the 
with the author of the Israeli statute you heard about before. Uh, excuse me. Uh, Professor Rabbi Dr. Avraham Steinberg of Hebrew University and also of Shari Tzedek. I discussed the matter with him over the summer and, and when we met at a different conference. Uh, as far as we know, this is the only extraterritorial implementation of the Israeli 2005 Dying Patient Act, uh, which has very substantial halakhic components. Uh, namely, that although there is a difference of opinion among the major contemporary poskim over uh, definition of death and life support and disconnect of life support and how life support might or might not be disconnected with a Shon Shabbat or not, uh, there is unanimity that one doesn't take any active step to, to, to shorten life by withdrawing basic life support uh, um, uh, items like a ventilator under certain circumstances. So um, the problem that we had in the case that I hear I call Yair Cohen was that um, it was a mess. He collapsed. He was not brain dead at the time that we started working on the case, but uh, the people involved who had the healthcare proxies were empowered, nevertheless, to authorize the disconnect of his ventilator. Then it became a medical decision as to, well, is he dead enough to kill him? Really, in the vernacular, as a lawyer might argue. So, um, when we started on the case, he, was st he needed ventilation, but his pulse was fine, and his, uh, his, his heartbeat was fine without any medical intervention or assistance at all. The medication that's used to do that is generally uh, referred to as vasopressors, which help the, uh, the circulation go. So, and the blood pressure remains high enough and stable. So, um, we, we, uh, we took a, um, you know, an aggressive but a very non-confrontational approach you know, the tact is defined as the art of making a point without making an enemy. And in these cases where our objective is not only to succeed, um, it's also a question of, of Kiddush Hashem and not ruining it for the next patient. It's very, very difficult. So as we were working on this case, his condition continued to deteriorate. And this fellow was somewhat estranged from his family. And his family flew in from B'nai Brak. And Rav Chaim Kanievsky gave them marching orders to do whatever it would take to keep their brother alive. Now, this family had suffered a terrible tragedy, as you'll read in the brief. They lost a number of family members in a car accident. Uh, and uh, Mr. Cohen, I think, from what I was able to assemble in the short time that we were working on the case, Mr. Cohen, I think, really never thought his family would care that much about him. He's living in the middle of nowhere in Albuquerque, and they all turned out to save him. And that made a tremendous impression on the court, and it made a, a tremendous impression on the law guardian. So what happened was, to protect his interests, the court appointed a lawyer to be his uh, spokesman, because he couldn't speak for himself, because he was unconscious. And the law guardian uh, inquired of the uh, local Chabad-located lawyer, and of the local Chabad rabbi. Well, what does Jewish law say about this? What's Israeli law? He's an Israeli citizen, although he was living in the United States with a green card. So uh, my task was to explain it. And the answer was, I didn't know at the moment. So I had to find out, and I did. And I, I located in the uh, Israeli statute, a translation of which we provided to the court, uh, that there's this distinction, which we heard about this morning in the presentation by uh, Professor Alevi. And uh, I also copied 
from a, uh, from a report of the proceedings of a Jewish medical ethics conference in Switzerland, uh, Professor Steinberg's presentation on how this law was put together. And the court relied on that in part to give us some more time. More time for two reasons. Number one, in many of these cases, the patient is going to unfortunately pass away. Anyhow, the question is, will he pass away at the time that God picks for him, like we heard this morning, or, or otherwise? And um, what happened was that at the end, uh, he was still alive. Uh, we could not find any additional witnesses that uh, we hoped we could find during that period, and he passed away. But Rabbi Gluck saw to it that his body was got to Israel. And uh, there's an important footnote here. Um, the Israeli Foreign Ministry, uh, through the New York Consul General's office, became very heavily involved, and they dispatched their New York lawyer out to argue the case together with the local lawyer, and they made an enormously positive impact. And the result was about as good as it could be, considering that the healthcare proxies, that uh, proxy forms that were signed by the by the patient authorized uh, the people who wanted to end the treatment to do so. So uh, that was very, very uh, successful within the bounds of what was possible. I only have uh, a couple of minutes left. I want to encourage you to be aware of a couple of practical things which will help Zaka in the future um, do their job as effectively as possible, particularly the advent of the Affordable Care Act here in the United States. Um, we don't know what the future holds. Uh, our values vis-a-vis -vis the infinite value of every minute of human life um, are, are just not popular. Of all the Jewish ethnic or pressure groups in the United States, it is only the Orthodox Jews who are sensitive to the degree that we are in this area. And the problem is there are a lot of us, there are a lot of us in key metropolitan areas where there are key medical centers, and that the difference of opinion among the poskim illustrates to the people at the hospital level that perhaps we don't have uh, a house in order vis-a-vis -vis what our beliefs really are. And that's really not true. There's just a divergence of opinion in medicine about all sorts of things, and in religion there is too. But they don't get it. And sometimes these things aren't presented as effectively by people in crisis than the other people who are not in crisis would present them. So I put in this pamphlet, and if there aren't enough of the people here, send me an email, I'll, I'll be glad to shoot off to you a, a PDF. A few things. The first is, in a similar case to ones you've heard, uh, the hospital out of town, uh, this is in Colorado, a fellow from Brooklyn goes hiking in, in a very famous uh, natural preserve. He has a cardiac condition, he has a seizure, um, and uh, he has very serious neurological damage. And we are involved in having the hospital give him more time so he could be stable and be transported to New York where he could be cared for according to what his rabbi tells his family. And they assure the family, we'll take care of him, don't worry. But page one inside the cover of the blue pamphlet shows you the do not resuscitate uh, bracelet placed on my client's father's wrist. He calls me in the office one day and he says, uh, Moish, you won't believe this. So what do you mean? We're doing fine with you. I was on a conference call with the ethics committee, on the speakerphone, everything was Jim Dandy. And in fact, uh, as Alan Dershowitz says in his book, um, The Best Defense, cops lie. And when I was a young lawyer, I couldn't believe it since I spent six years defending the FBI agents and they're very honest guys. But the fact of the matter is, on the micro level, sometimes doctors lie. Or the nurses lie, or they accidentally make a mistake. 
And I, unfortunately, I have to give them the benefit of the line. It could be an accidental, not on purpose mistake. But mistakes happen in any professional setting. So here you see, so I told the, the fellow, I don't believe it. Cannot be. So he said, yes, it is. So you have a smartphone? Yes. Take a picture of your father's wrist and email it to me. And I've taken out the identifying information on this, but there's enough real information in these pixels for you to see. It does happen. Had I not experienced it, I might not have believed it. Um, there's another case I should tell you about. Um, I represented briefly uh, the son of a Holocaust survivor who suffered uh, you know, unimaginable horrors in the concentration camps, and he survived. And he uh, had a multiplicity of medical problems, and he always would delegate to his son a medical uh, health care proxy whenever he was hospitalized to take care of him. And he was admitted to a leading New York medical center, but he was fully conscious, and generally speaking, the law is that uh, if you're conscious and can make decisions for yourself, you can't delegate it to your proxy. And therefore, healthcare proxy or advanced medical directive or living will really has no efficacy whatsoever. But because he was so traumatized in the war, he could not deal with medical issues. So, generally speaking, whenever he was hospitalized, which was pretty regular, his son would take over and there was no problem. This particular medical center is known in the medical legal community as taking a very tough stand. So they refused to respect the son's wishes because they said the healthcare proxy was no good because he was fully conscious and, con and he had a full cognitive powers. It's just that his judgment and ability to deal emotionally, intellectually with these problems just was, didn't work. So they decided they were going to take matters into their own hands before the next ethics committee meeting. And you won't believe this, but this is what happened. They sequestered the father, who was well in his 80s, in a conference room. They, two members of the ethics committee with very, very nice starched white jackets uh, sat down with him and persuaded him because the door was closed, to sign a blank health care proxy with none of the conditions that he had put in there, appointing his son, but without any instructions. And uh, he was intimidated, and he signed it. And, um, and then when the son was tumbling in order to help his father, they said, sorry, we've got another health care proxy, you're out of luck. So uh, what do you do? And uh, meanwhile, if this continued, he wouldn't survive his treatment in the hospital, and uh, so what happened was, what we did is we assembled um, a Muslim of people to visit him after Shabbos on Saturday night, this occurred on a Friday, and we had him execute another health care proxy, which was a mirror image of the one that they tried to supersede. And we, uh, we told the hospital lawyers that if they would not withdraw their position, the world would find out about what they did, and they withdrew. So, uh, we're almost done with the time. Um, I, I want to encourage you to be aware of the importance of healthcare proxies, both here and in Medina Israel. The Israel Health Ministries form is included in the blue packet, as is the Rabbinical Council of America OU form and the Agudis Yisrael Chaim Aruchim form. And those of you who like to do textual analysis, I think will find it very interesting to compare the differences. Uh, the Israeli form is very much akin to an American living will, but you can tell that a, a, a committee of 59 very wise men and women put it together. Because the permutations and combinations of medical crises and their solutions are detailed in exquisite detail in four or five pages of checklist items. Um, in the um, OU form, um, and this is a very interesting social anthropological point that I think bears mentioning, the, the Rhythmical Council of America form 
pays homage to the Agudas Yisrael and their efforts in order to get this type of concept popularized. And the basic difference between the two is that uh, the Agudas Yisrael form says strict Orthodox Jewish law, while the RCA form says Jewish law, and also the Agudas Yisrael form actually gives a designation of an organization apart from a rabbi. So uh, my pitch for you is that when you travel, um, you should especially if you're traveling to Israel, if you have Israelis that come to the United States filling out these forms is something you should consider. Zaka is working on a card that will fit into your, uh, into your pocket. I have a copy of uh, the sleeve. And they, I think um, there's also another card that's uh, being popularized by the National Association of Cheres Kadisha called the MS card. Uh, and that so that p- there's a little plastic sleeve that your driver's license and the card or cards would be located so that a first responder like Rabbi Gluck and his colleagues who happen to come across an observant Jewish accident or, or a mass uh, attack victim sees what their preferences are, that they have written instructions that the wishes of this particular patient would be respected and that uh, Rabbi Gluck and his people will have plenty of work to do, even if those cards are taken care of, but it will see to it that your wishes and your loved one's wishes would be respected. I thank you very much for your attention, and Rabbi Gluck and I would be glad to take questions. If there are any. You're welcome. Amen. Hmm. Like that too. why, like um, Mr. Kurzman mentioned and like we've been discussing so much, that's the reason why healthcare proxies are that important. Many people don't realize the importance of it, and I can't stress it enough. Over 50% of the cases that I deal with on regular hospital deaths, we're not even talking about car accidents <coughs> or anything you know, out of ordinary, I'm still having to find myself, raise money to go to court and even if we don't pay the lawyers, the filing fees alone, I mean, you can tell you, we had in Washington State, we spent almost $4,000 just in filing fees. All because there was no health care proxy. All because there was no defined definition. Who is it that should make these decisions? So I've been working with Rabbi Zohan on this tremendously from the National Association of Public Kaddishas, and we're trying to, I mean, it's a very expensive project that we're undertaking, but that's our next goal, is for the, every person should have a health care proxy signed, registered, not just in the United States. Israel has a bigger problem. Rabbi Zohan's own father was, uh, was supposed to get traced. This is, and he's the head of the Kavar Kaddish Association of the United States. So you're not talking about a small player. His own father was intubated. He's supposed to have a trach put in. They have, I think, seven or eight kids in the family. Israeli health care law requires either a health care proxy or a separate notarized affidavit from every living next of kin. So Thursday night, he finds out about this. It's already close to Shabbos in New York. By Monday, they're no longer able to get this done. By Tuesday, they were preparing for the Leviathan, not blaming one for the other. Obviously, that's all at the next level. But the fact remains that <coughs> the issue here was there was no health care proxy. They then needed to go to a Beit Mishpat in Israel Tuesday morning 
to confirm the seven notarized affidavits from the children. Now, if they would have had a health care proxy, this issue would not be an issue. Most of the cases that we find ourselves dealing with when he's acting as the lawyer and I'm just making a lot of noise is really specifically for these matters. So it's an expensive proposition. I'm not going to say it's not. I mean, the project we're trying to launch, which is going to be an international effort, costing us close to $200,000. But then again, there are some cases we spent $50,000, $60,000 on just fighting that one case. So uh, Not to me. Right, yeah, I was going to say. How have I? Um, a lawyer that doesn't take money, wow, that's a rarity. Um, but the truth is, that's part. So doctors telling families, oh, you don't need to sign this, we're going to... And I've had this in hospitals with from doctors in metropolitan areas with Jewish-sounding names of the hospitals, not to mention any specifically, where I'm there with a patient as a paramedic, and I'm like, listen, let's sign a healthcare proxy as we finish in the ER. And this from doctor walks up and says, no, it's really not a big deal. I mean, we're, you know, we know all the halachas. Thank you, Doc. Except when it comes to your ethics division deciding that this is ethically this person shouldn't be alive, and your legal division deciding insurance won't pay anymore for this person to be kept on support, so let's pull it. Now where do you leave me? Because we didn't sign it. So, on another hand, Chaim Aruchim is working heavily on educating doctors. So I don't know, you know where they're up to with that, but they're trying. They said that the president of NYU, they had a meeting St. Francis does the same thing. <laughs> and the pressure on medical personnel and hospital administrators is enormous. A, for the rankings, B, for insurance reimbursement, and C, because of governmental pressure in general. Uh, and also, I want to speak up for the doctors, particularly the orthodox doctors, which is that uh, hospitals are bureaucracies. And if you're going to be different and make waves, it could very much jeopardize your advancement and professional standing and even your, your board recertification. So that it's really not fair to expect, uh, particularly young Orthodox doctors and nurses and psychiatric social workers, to put their careers on the line because somebody hasn't taken the trouble to sign a healthcare proxy. We owe something to them too, and don't expect them to sacrifice a career for one patient who hasn't bothered to take care of him, him or herself. Um, I do want to uh, bring something to your attention. Um, the uniform, uh, the commissioners of the uniform. Uh, state statutes uh, uh, promulgated a long time ago something called the Uniform uh, Definition of Death Act, which has been implemented in all 50 states. In New York, though, it's been implemented not by statute, meaning law, but by regulation. And uh, that's one of the things that was yellowed out. But it's, um, the, thing you could, the way you can recognize it in your materials, it says on top, um, official compilation of codes, etc., of the state of New York. And on definition of death, it takes the two classic definitions in contemporary medical science and ethics, which is the, uh, the irreversible cessation of circulatory and re respiratory functions, and also, or the irreversible uh, cessation of all functions of the entire brain, including but not limited to the brainstem, and there are procedures there for letting next of kin know and for accommodating the religious or moral preferences of the patient insofar as they can be determined. And this is unique in the United States. And it was through the efforts of Jewish lobbying um, by uh, Good at Israel that this was implemented. And there is a crisis today, and I'm not exaggerating. 
um, really underplaying it. I've had three such cases this week alone. There's a crisis today on what a reasonable accommodation is, given the fact that it's so expensive to keep patients alive on occasion, and even when it is not, the hospitals lean on the family very, very heavily, and families don't always have the stamina to withstand it. Um, and as we heard this morning as well, you need Rabbanim who have enough medical backup to be able to poskin these shilas, and it's not a simple thing. Uh, and the procedure to notify families so that they can take an active role, uh, people can be very aggressive about notifying a family or be passive about it until it's too late. And it's a very, very delicate problem. And it's not just the doctors, the Orthodox doctors who are working in these medical centers. Uh, it's also the religious chaplains who work in these medical centers because they have to get along. Otherwise, there won't be Orthodox Jewish chaplains in these places either. So we need to help them so that when push comes to shove on those occasions where we have to be firm about it, uh, we don't have to put people in uncomfortable positions unnecessarily. And uh, healthcare proxies, like the Rabbi Glock has just explained again, are really very important. And if you have relatives in Israel, you should bring... Uh, this to their attention as well. And even if a person is traveling with a healthcare proxy, and on the Israeli law, for example, uh, if you have an MS card or a Zaka card in your pocket and you're visiting Israel, it doesn't have extraterritorial effect the way it might in the United States, because Israel has its own rules. But the Israeli law itself says, well, if you don't have an Israeli healthcare proxy, you're a tourist. You're there for 10 or 15 or 20 days, whatever. But if there's some indication of what you would want, it gives your relatives and whatever Israeli lawyer or rov that they would, would, would be asked to assist a tremendous leg up because hard, these things are resolved very differently in Israel than they are in the United States. There's an ethics committee that deals with this, just like the triage committee that we heard about in Haiti, uh, at the operational level at the hospital. If the family's not happy, there's a national committee, and from there you can go to an Israeli court, assuming the patient is still being maintained. So that... If you have a, uh, some American writings signed by the patient, it could be enormously helpful in seeing to it that the person's rights are being respected. And it's not a question, particularly in New York where we have this wonderful regulation, it's not a question of yielding to a religious preference. It's a question of a person's civil liberties. And there's no more basic right than the right to life. Because without life, there's no liberty and there's no pursuit of happiness. Thank you very much.